Good morning and welcome to The Wise Why. I am joined by Damien Marsh this morning, and I hope I said that correctly, because I grew up in the 70s and 80s with that film. And we are going to probably talk about that because Damien also grew up about the same time. So as you can imagine, we might be around the same age. But as usual, it's The Wise Why. And we don't worry about Kirsty Vanderbilt. What we do want to know is about Damien. So Damien, please introduce yourself. Uh, thanks, Kirsty. Um, David Marsh, um, joining Wise Why, uh, the kind request of Kirsty, and hopefully a, a bit of insight into myself. Um, I think as a bio says, I'm a, a Yorkshire lad, but uh, grew up in the north and headed south. Um, and I think we'll come on to some of those topics shortly, Kirsty. Um, currently working in the security industry for a, uh, a global engineering firm. Loving it because it's really innovative, and some of the things we're doing there is groundbreaking. I think that's a common theme throughout this session is, you know, where I am, where I am today, my love of fast things, particularly jets, the fact that I'm uber excited about going to see Top Gun tonight. And um, uh, yeah, just, just to give a bit of background and, and insight into, into my journey. So we're going to talk about Top Gun. Let's just get it out there because you have put your name there, Damien Maverick Marsh. And I love that. I really do. I grew up I think Top Gun was probably one of the most influential films of my teenage years, that and Pretty Woman, and I'm trying to think what else was there. Oh, there was a whole load, wasn't there? The Breakfast Club. Why? Which one? So there's many for Rocky, yeah. <laughs> Rocky IV. So why, why Top Gun? Because I know this is going to lead us onto a really lovely subject in a minute. Why Top Gun? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's just my roots as a child. I uh, quickly developed a passion for, for, for aircraft, um, particularly fast jets. Um, and I know we'll come on to my aspirations of wanting to, to join the RAF, hence the name Damien Maverick Marsh. Um, I don't know, it was just a film and the whole reason of the film was to, you know, to try and get more people subscribed into the um, um, US Air Force or the US Naval Air Force. Uh, as a recruitment video, it was it was billed as, but you know, it was exciting, it was fast, it was fast jets and flight scenes and music and, and it just it was just a really good film and I've been watching the trailers and taking the kids tonight and um, can't wait to go and see it. I can imagine I hope you're not disappointed because I loved the the first film I thought it was brilliant and I and you know you look at the actors from there like Mark Green and and of course Tom Cruise has gone huge but Mark Green was in ER for a very long time and and I I remember just loving Goose like I can't help it I actually preferred Goose. There you go. I, I guess. And, and even looking back, some of the actors in there, like Tom Skerry, and he was in like um, the original Alien film. And then he, Tim Robbins was even in the, is one of the navigators in it. And Tim Robbins is a brilliant actor, love him in Shawshank Redemption and things like that. So there's many, many stars in it. But again, you know, you had you know, motorbikes, you had a Porsche Roadster, you had F-14s, you know, just all this, you know, petrol, you know, speed freaks. <laughs> Um, type items. I mean, again, I was hypercritical because I was so into planes that I realised that the uh, the enemy MiGs were actually F5B Tiger Sharks painted black with a red star on them. Um, so hopefully, the new film will have some proper enemy aircraft in it rather than uh, <laughs> borrowed, reconditioned, and painted planes from the US Air Force. So, so how did you make the leap? Because I think this is fascinating. We are going to talk, talk about what it was like to move from Yorkshire and come south of Watford Gap and what it was like in, you know, moving from um, Yorkshire to leafy suburb, suburbia, sweet yeah. suburbia as the song goes. But I'm intrigued. How did you make the leap? At what age did you decide that you were going to try? And I think it's incredible you did this to get down to the last 150 
mm-hmm. to join the, the RAF. It's it's not a small feat. It's incredible. So can you tell us about that? I mean, I know there'll be the disappointment side. Yeah, but... yeah, and there was. But I, again, I just I say it goes back and, and, you know, it's about influential people and inspirations uh, in my life. And, um, you know, my grandfather was one of them because I had two very military uh, grandfathers from my mother's side, an army um, um my, my grandfather and it was from the army um, my dad's side he was more in the in the royal navy and and you know on naval ships so then i thought yeah well we'll just make it a full house and i'll go for the air force um but my, my granddad from my mother's side used to traipse around the country and take me to air shows and you know where's the noise we always just say where's the noise where's it and then the big vulcan bomber would come in or the harrier jump jet would take off and you know that and the, i remember when the, watching the tornado for the first time it did the pass and the plane went past i was like oh there's no noise and then a second later when the speed of sound caught up and the big boom and you could feel the inside it's tummy rumbling i thought that's what i want to do that's what i want to be when i uh when i grow up so i was probably sort of nine ten years old when i started developing that passion for aircraft um obviously went to college and i was focused and and just wanted to, that's all I wanted to ever be. Unfortunately, at that time, my eyesight was good enough and I was a bit fitter than I am today, so I could pass those tests. Um, I've always liked testing and, say, being an aquarium that's analytical. I like problem solving, so a lot of those aptitude tests were problem solving, how you would react in certain situations. But equally, you know, after, you know, um, getting down that selection from thousands to the last 150, yes, it was a bit of disappointment that I wasn't good enough, but it was as a top gun saying it's the best of the best that get through especially to be a fighter pilot um but yeah it, it didn't quite work out and i looked for other routes to get into the rf to become an engineer and things like that but what I, I didn't quite have the same level of passion and drive and enthusiasm to want to do that although i wanted to be close to aircraft um i wanted to be in the front seat of flying those things so I want to pick up on that because we we spoke yesterday, obviously, and uh, well, not obviously, that's a really bad thing. Nobody knows that, but we spoke yesterday, and I'm I love your passion. Your passion is incredible, and I love your passion because you serve people. You don't sell, you serve, and I'd like to expand a bit more about your passion because to mm-hmm. switch your passion from um, you know RAF fighter pilot to engineering is quite a huge switch yeah you're still really passionate and driven by it so i'm intrigued by that yeah i mean uh, as i said i i I wanted to be a pilot and then i started looking into more commercial pilot and and again didn't get through to that and helicopters or applied for western helicopters i then did get a um apprenticeship ready for um british aerospace systems as it was those days in kingston I think they made components for the Harrier jump jets and I got an apprenticeship there. So I was already start happy days. And then literally about two, three weeks before I was due to join, I got a letter through the post saying they were shutting the factory down and the apprenticeship was cancelled. So again, another disappointment. So what do you do? You want, you wander around. My dad was an engineer. Um, he was more in process control, SCADA controls um, for, for petrochem plants and things like that. Um, so again, I'd always been brought up on technical problem solving, engineering, um, so I went out there and eventually sort of more fell into a, an apprenticeship with a company called Safe Controls, um, building, man- building energy management system. So, you know, HVAC, air conditioning. Um, but again, you know, did that, was learning 
I didn't. I don't think I was a particularly brilliant um, academic. I wasn't. I didn't really have a passion to go to university per se. I like to learn on the job and learn with my hands and learn when I'm actually doing things. So it's more of a practical side, which I've always been that way. Um, so again, whilst having that balance and blend between going to college, doing your exams, but then focusing on a on an industry. Um, but again, you did things like maths and climatology and physiology and you know pressure drops and flow rates and all this good stuff. So again, there's still enough stimulation from the educational side, but also working and getting paid. Uh, and every time you pass your exams, you've got a, a, a healthy pay rise. So, you know, always from that point, I was into technology. Um, what I loved about the construction industry was the variety because no two buildings are really the same. So it's not like it's always the same. There's a little bit of variance where it is, got to travel around the UK, commissioning, did software engineering, project management, and then eventually sort of fell into sales. And then worked through some of the big corporates like your Honeywell's and Thorne, which now became Tyco and Johnson Controls now, um, uh, ECS Lighting Controls. That was interesting because that was another innovative product that could you know, do addressable lighting. Um, right the way through um, to Asarab, as um, heading up the uh, access control division, um, promoting the Aperio wireless locks. So again, technology moving away from more of a traditional method to where I am today at QCIC and, and we've got this whole design build run model. Um, we're really thinking about security in a different way and using automation technology to eradicate human error and provide consistency. So just those little technological innovations really stimulate me and it, you know, I'm passionate about it. And hopefully as you say, I serve the, my audience well to show the passion. And it's not just that, you know, I'm selling something because I'm being paid by the company. I'm selling something because I believe in it. So, there's a lot of people that listen to the wise why that have never until we started this and and every you know I, I don't bring it's not a security podcast but it, it brings on some security people because as a industry you don't advertise yourself because you can't let's yeah. be honest one of the things that is very difficult for somebody in security is to go out there and blast yourself out on social media so you know you're being brave and you're stepping out of the norm but if you could sum up the security industry in a sentence this is a hard one but you did say I could do this to you. So yeah. if you could sum up the succinctly to somebody who's never even thought what is the security industry, because when people think about security, they think of a doorman. You did, they do. What, what is the difference between working in the security industry and being a doorman, just so somebody can can understand what we're talking about? <laughs> That's a tough one. Thanks, Kirsty. Um, that is a tough one. I know. It's just it's just the protection of people assets and, and, and items um, and keeping people safe and sound. I mean, yes, a, a doorman will you know recognize if someone's not quite right to go in there and it can eject them. But using technology and what we call physical security, even though it's called physical, it's still not it's still not a doorman. It's not a man guarding. It's it's the electronic elements behind it, whether that's access control, whether it's CCTV, whether it's intruder. Um, it's all a combination of protecting the asset and keeping the people within those areas safe. So. We have a lot of high-profile um, corporate global clients. Um, obviously, can't be named under strict NDA, so you've got to be very careful what you do and do not say about them. Yeah. Um, but again, they're using technology to drive analytics to see where penetration could happen from a cyber perspective. Um, we do things like hostile vehicle mitigation, so we've got really nice architectural lakes outside buildings. They're not really lakes; they're there to stop someone piling into the building with a truckload of explosives. So it's all little things it's about it's about subtle so you don't want cameras in your face you want covert discrete cameras that you feel like you're not being watched but you are being watched and it's basically the layers of an onion is the way that security works from 
right in the heart of it, high secure, right the way to your perimeter. So um, difficult question, isn't it? But it's, it's I would it's just say, well, I love the analogy back to the onion. I think that actually sums it all up because you've got the heart and then you, you go out and out and out and it's about protecting. So thank you, because somebody actually asked me, what is the security industry? And I said, I'll bring it on to the next time. I just didn't give you a heads up because you don't yeah, overthought. And, and I do have a big thing about overthinking. Um, I want to go back to your childhood. Sure. You talked about your granddad. Mm -hmm. We talked about moving to from Yorkshire to, well, not Yorkshire, was it? It was, um, well, it was Yorkshire to Cheshire and then to, to Surrey, yeah. So what was that like? Because how old were you? Oh, it all happened at once, really, Kirsty. As a, you know, as, I was, sort of, let's say, born in, in, in Yorkshire. Um, then we moved to Cheshire when I was about six or seven. Um, again, it's pretty local. It's not far down the road, um, per se, and, and still the accent wasn't a massive variance. But then heading south when I was around 11 or 12, um, that's when it sort of hit me because, you know, I came down from the north with a name um, of a film of a devil child, which was you know, <laughs> providing enough ridicule on its own, um, to then be, hey, how are you doing? Um, to all these um, Danny Dyer-esque <laughs> type Southerners, you know, I stood out like a sore thumb. I was the black sheep in, in, the, in the classroom area. I was the, the I had a, a lot of jokes and and, and taunting. Um, and again, it, it toughened me up though. I mean, whilst it was not very nice at that point in time. And again, even at that point, I was quite a, slight, a shy introvert person. I was always a bit anxious and a bit nervy. And I didn't want to, you know, I remember having a conversation with dad and I was, you know, didn't want to move to the south. And, and another factor was that my parents had recently got divorced. I was living, staying with my dad and my dad had got promoted to move down south. So I'd had everything thrust upon me at, you know, quite a young age. Uh, plus moving from the north to the south, my dad had a new European role with a very, global um, company so he had to put the effort in to to you know solidify that position keep his position within that company so I quickly became the cook the cleaner the ironer the shopper uh, at a very young age so it developed me it made me independent I had no choice so you know uh, you know you survive or die and, and and there was a lot of factors all at once but I think that helped distract from some of the taunting and the and the mickey taking that, that ensued while I was at school it's incredible because I, I changed school. We all changed school. Let's be honest. We all changed school around 11, 12 or 13, depending where you are. And um, I changed from my local school and I went into London. And the perception of was that I was posh. I was really, really posh. Uh, to be fair, I did go to a private school and it was a very um, elite school. So I went to arts educational, which is where you do half your day is dance or drama and the other half of the day is academics it's very different and it was a very small school so I can't and, and I'd love you to expand on this what it was like to come from the north to the south and go into such a big school because I've got no concept now I know 90% of the people out there do but there were only 150 pupils in my school and mm. that was secondary so I can't imagine yeah, the level of um, Mickey taking, we'll call it Mickey taking, yeah. one of my school, the, the worst thing that ever happened to me was my school dress was stuffed down the toilet and I came back from my dance class and found that my somebody had picked up my school dress. And yeah, it's it's at that point, we call it Mickey taking, but actually it is bullying. And they shoved it down into the toilet and that meant I had to go home in my dance clothes, which meant I walked from the Barbican all the way down to my parents' house wearing a cape. So we talk about... Sorry? Superwoman. 
do you know it it's it wasn't a superwoman cape it was turquoise and um yeah we won't go there i had bright pink tight no i was in it was in bally clothes you just <laughs> that's giving you an, an image now. but yeah what was it like um coming down and, and walking into that school for the first time did you make friends quickly or were they just were you just was it always Damon with the ear because of that film yeah I mean it was it was yeah it was tough because I, I came in it wasn't like the first introduction when you go from year 11 plus and you, you step up to the secondary so most of the people have been there a year and they've found their friendship groups so they're called today we just call them mates back in back in the old days um I think the other thing was which was interesting fact was when I was at Sandbach, I went to Sandbach school, which was at that time a grammar school, all boys. Um, so I came down and suddenly there's females, um, <laughs> you know, going through, you know, 12, 12 years old, you're starting to sort of hit that, that, you know, hormones are kicking in as well. So I was very nervous around, around females at that time. Um, coming from this with a funny accent and, you know, on my own, didn't have any, you know, you're in a place where you know nobody, absolutely nobody. And it did take me a little bit of time to, to find my feet, find the people that I wanted to be friends with. Um, and I would always say I was one of those in-betweeners. I was never in the ultra-popular group. And I wasn't, you know, one of the geeky people in the, in the other group. I was that sort of mid-middle range. But I think that's something one of my other bosses has said is that the way I work, I'm a very much a, he called me a chameleon. You know, I could step up and have a conversation with the CEO, but then I can go and meet Bob, the installer on site, and not make them feel, you know, pressured or you know can have that articulate in different various and understand my surroundings and cope and adapt so I think that's what I had to do I had to sort of pick my friends selectively and you know you tried a few didn't work out and I moved on I eventually did find a very good friendship group and um, did remain friends for, for quite a while I mean sadly now um, with everything that's transpired and life and family and work and I don't really keep in touch with any or don't see anybody from my school days any longer um, but, you know, even despite the, the Mickey taking, the taunting, you know, the incessant, you know, language and up and Ecky Thump and, oh, do you want some black pudding and all that sort of thing that would, you know, synonymous with the North versus the South. Um, I look back with my, my, my school as, as with fond memories. I mean, I look, I'm always that glass half full sort of person, optimistic. So, yeah, there's going to be some negatives, but, you know, I think, oh, no, but I did this at school and this was really good and this was really good. Never really, I always sort of package and box and put on the, the negativity and leave it packaged there and, and rather would focus on the good things in life rather than dwelling on, on, on things which have been a bad experience. But you learn, from, you learn from your mistakes and you made the point earlier about wanting to join the RAF. You know, it was a bit of disappointment. That's all I'd ever wanted to be. And I didn't have a backup plan for anything else. Um, but yeah, in life, you've got to understand that, you know, you're going to hear the word no, and it's how you cope with it and how it shapes you. And then for me personally, it, it drove and strove me to be what I am today and, and, and make me focus and understand what I want and where I wanted to get to. I love that because my next question was going to be, so how do you think your childhood has shaped you? And you've just answered that. And it's brilliant. So thank you. I want to talk about people who have, or I want to ask you about people who have inspired you along your way or supported you. Because I think that's really important. We always, I love gratitude. I love mm -hmm. saying thank you to people. So who has inspired or supported you along the way? Well, obviously the close family, um, you know, parents, grandparents. Um, I wasn't the only child, so I didn't have any siblings per se. I mean, my dad 
did get remarried and he, he moved and eventually with his jobs to the Middle East, Petrochem was a lot of that uh, that stuff from out there. So um, I do have a, um, a half brother and half sister and they still in, live in, um, in, in the Middle East. Um, and we're fairly close, but it wasn't like a true growing up bestie brother sister relationship. Um, but yeah, my, some friends have inspired me. Certainly some of my bosses along the way have, have, have inspired me. But predominantly, I think, you know, my parents and grandparents, you know, they're the ones that have sort of been there for me, led me, shaped me, been a shoulder to cry on and, and repositioned me when I need to and rebuild me. So, um, you know, there's been a lot of ups and downs through my life. And, and you know, it's a roller coaster. So, you know, the people that are generally, and I do have quite a small true friends, you know, I'm, I'm one of these people I've, got a big network on LinkedIn and you know not a lot of people in the industry but I could probably count on one possibly two hands my true friends that I'd always rely on in a in a in a sticky situation and they're then my confidants because I'm again I'm Aquarian I'm deep I like to keep things boxed in into myself I'm not very good believe it or not articulating talking about myself and my feelings um but that's just my DNA unfortunately so right my brother is Aquarian I grew up with that and I used to and and I love my I love my husband. He's brilliant, but oh my goodness, he's a sagi. I can't say what I called him because it's 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 rude. But I could, he's a Sagittarian. I had to stop myself, so I have a rude phrase for a Sagittarian. Um, <laughs> yes, um, and but he's a yeah. He's he's an island. He and I have to. Re it's sometimes, but I don't think that's necessarily a star sign thing. So just before we go down that, I think that's quite the difference between men and women. I was reading an article once where it was like. In our heads as a woman, we think there's something wrong. But mm. actually, it's normally a man is sitting there trying to work out what they want to do next with the car. So do I want to upgrade the exhaust? Something we wouldn't even think about. Or do I? how can I put my tools up in the garage? And I think that, that I, I remember saying to, to Dennis, what's going on? You're deep in thought. This has been going on for days. And eventually, you turned around and went, oh, I'm working out how to put the hooks in the wall to put, hang the bikes up. I thought there was something seriously wrong. It wasn't. And I think that male-female brain, um, and I'm not going to the gender side, but mm -hmm. the way we think, the way we are is is quite different. Yeah. The way we process. I'm I'm emotional. I, I think there has to be emotion behind stuff. And my husband's an analytical and goes, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. But, yeah, it's it's it's... It's that balance, I guess. You know, this everyone's different. That's and that's what I thought. A variety in it, and people, and that's why I love doing the role I do. You know, it's a lot of people watching, people monitoring. Um, you know, understanding what makes one person tick versus another person tick, and you know, particularly you've got to when you're trying to promote. And I hate the word sell, but you know, when you're trying to promote the business and the services that you provide, provide etc. Different people have different values. And you've got to find out what they value. It might be price, it might be security, it might be brand. You know, there's there's a, there's a variety of different things, and you've got to get under that skin and create that personal relationship and, and find out what makes one person tick. And it's very different from what makes you tick to what makes me tick or the next person down the line. So, but I really love this whole people watching and 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 understanding the way that we we work as, as as the creatures that we are and it was interesting because um i went to an event funny story um and one of the guest speakers there was a, an ex-military um frontline trooper with special forces and he was a reconnaissance um individual he, he said you know he'd spent months dug in a hole just watching the enemy 
just understanding, seeing what they're doing, the patterns. Um, and it was all about people, you know, watching. And, and, and I said to well, them, just, you know, off the cuff, I said, well, what am I like? And literally, he was to a T, he goes, you come into a room and you will sort of scan the room and you'll see and you'll evaluate people really quickly. And then you'll sort of not give people permission to talk to you, but you'll let people come and talk to you. You'll be more open and approachable for some people than others. And I was like, wow, that's pretty spot on considering you met me 30 seconds ago to have that sort of understanding of people and the way people act and little traits to watch out for. Yeah, no, I love people watching. I'm the same. We've had a couple of people comment, which is really lovely. So we've had Joanne, uh, Rubina, and uh, have both, oh, and Peter Morrison have said hello to so Joanne Herman um, and Rubina. I love Rubina. She's, she's just amazing. So Joanne says, um, I love your passion about aviation. Thank she you. tried to join the RAF. I never knew that. Uh, at universities, they didn't have women pilots. They asked me to put weight on. Can you imagine that? Because the ejector seat wouldn't register her. She was a professional skater. So, oh. and of course, she would have found that difficult, um, but she would have loved to have joined. So, again, there's that thing of lovely. <laughs> Peter, sorry. So just in Peter's comment, oh, I'm a Sagittarian. I'm still not going to tell you. I will text you. That doesn't you surprise Peter. me, Peter. <laughs> I know, I know a few stories about Peter, but we'll leave that there. It's not for why is why. Oh, I, I bet we're going to have to have that beer. Um, and then uh, there was well, another... There was a lot oh, yeah. of that involved, Kirsty. to be fair. Sorry? There was, I, I will tell a funny story, Peter, forgive me. We were in Dubai at an event, it was at ASA. Uh, Peter kindly said he'd do an interview, and we've both been at McGettigan's Irish Bar for a little bit too long. We watched the footage back, and it was hilarious. We were like two semi-drunken people oh damon what do you like about michelle <laughs> well peter it was hilarious ask peter if he's still got the footage because it was hilarious shout out i want to see this footage okay um i won't critique it um joanne says how do you feel about the vulcan being out of service sorry how do you oh, feel about yeah yeah i mean this it pains me i mean um again another funny story um during lockdown the first time when it was sort of 28 days later everywhere i actually do a lot of cycling so i'd cycle from a house to heathrow and cycle the perimeter um road no aircraft turned up no hotels were up and it was really eerie and as you got towards hatton cross station and there's a concord still on the tarmac and what a travesty and a beautiful piece of engineering equipment now again i've been to brooklyn's museum and seen the you know how they actually made it go supersonic for a passenger airline and all that good stuff and it's just but the great thing is it's never been surpassed you know the americans could never build anything that go as fast as it would look as beautiful and same for the vulcan i always remember going um we used to have a caravan as a, as a child up in lincolnshire in mablethorpe and we used to come back past scampton and that's where the vulcans went i remember being at the end of the runway my dad had parked and we waited for half an hour and then this massive shadow came over this delta wing um yeah it's a beautiful piece of engineering and yeah sadly won't take to the airs ever again in fact i was fortunate i did see the final sort of goodbye show we were down in bournemouth and at farnborough um but it was great in, uh, in bournemouth on the beach watching the vulcan do the fly paths and stuff and it's yeah nostalgia it's, it's sad when you see these aircraft go out of service again i thought the harrier jump jet was another feat of engineering which was amazing um particularly in my age um, you know i remember the falklands conflict pretty well um and i remember being in the air cadets and they had this picture on the wall of the number of ref kills versus the argentinians um and it was literally you know seldom have so many been taken by so few that was the tagline it was literally three 
RAF Harrier shot down and 427 um, Argentinian aircraft. Wow. But it's, yeah, it was, it was, yeah. I mean, I'm sad. I mean, go back, I've waffled on about that, but yeah, really sad when these iconic aircraft go out of service. It's, it's just such a shame. I mean, I suppose the positive thing is that you do still get to see the, the Spitfire, the Hurricane and the Lancaster, you know, from, you know, uh, World War Two. There's, I think there's only one of those flying again now. So, um, so I'm spoilt where I live because I live in between Benson, um, Bryce Norton, and yeah. of course we have the Abingdon Air Show. So, and out the back of my house, it's not mine. There is a landing strip, so it's not mine. It's the 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 land local landowner, and we have planes that come in all the time, and I am so lucky. And also, my granddad did the electrics on Concord. Ah. Well, funny you, should, funny you say Abingdon and Bryce Norton, because again, in the air cadets, Abingdon was where he used to fly the Chipmunks, which is a twin-seater prop-driven air experience flight aircraft. And I spent through, I went to two camps at Bryce Norton, so that was obviously troop carriers, so it was VC-10s back in those days. Really bizarre that all military aircraft, the seats faced the wrong way, because obviously on impact, you don't want to you know, <laughs> damages yeah. too much. But again, I think one of the greatest things I did there was uh, we went up in a in a Hercules, opened the bay doors, and started chucking. We did load masting, so you did a fly pass. You start chucking stuff with the parachutes out the back, and it was just amazing. And I know we spoke yesterday, and I will get in. Is that close to where I live is RAF Odium, which is where mm -hmm. they keep the helicopters, so the Chinooks and the and the Pumas. And yeah, the Chinook was noisy. We had the back open, flying through the air. But uh, again, the I don't get goosebumps even talking about it. it was um, in the air cadets. We were we, we went out one day. We went out in this puma. We did like tree skimming. So you were in this big helicopter with the doors open, sat on the sides, and you sort of hitting the top of the trees. Then we all chucked ropes out and abseil out like a team. It's just amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I I love that. We've had a, a couple of more comments um, from Joe. She says. Um, I agree with Concord. Uh, last question. Are you going to see the flight path in London next week? I've seen the practice, but are you going to see the flight path in London next week? I'm hoping to. I am hoping to. I mean, I remember being when it was the was it the 100 year anniversary of the RF, and that was amazing. So I've seen all those aircraft right the way through to the new Lightnings, the, the Harrier replacements. And yeah, that was that was quite a quite a sight to behold. So I'm planning to hope to. Fortunate enough that I have an office right in in in, uh, in the city. So um, hopefully I can coincide that to uh, to see that when, when that happens. Damien, it has been an absolute pleasure. Oh, no, you're supposed to. Right, this is where I turn it around. I nearly got away um, with it. I nearly got away with it. I nearly forgot. Yes, you get to ask me a question. You get to ask me a question. <laughs> so I had something to prepare, but I've actually, because I'm trying to sort out position and everything and changes, <laughs> I've actually left my questions next door and I've completely gone a blank, but... Um, that's okay. You know, I quite like that. This is sped by, and I haven't even talked about other things. So maybe I need a second one about. You know, I'm surprised you didn't go into that. A lot of people ask about the DJ side of things, but we'll leave that there for this. this yeah, we segment. didn't. I don't know how we didn't get onto the DJ. Wow, we all have to go on. And I'm just going to put it out there. This is the person who said, "I don't have a very interesting life." Hmm. Hmm. I think we've just proved you do. Um, yeah. So well, again, I think I'd ask you is, you know, you. I mean, we've met a few times. We've never had that proper beer that, yeah, as you said. But you know, what do you want to be remembered for as your legacy after all this has happened and Kirsty's finished her career? What would you yeah. most like to be remembered for? I'd like to be remembered for being kind, and I know that's what people don't want to be remembered of. But I'm really at the moment. I'm finding the world quite. Um, 
painful. I think that's the best way to describe it. Uh, we've come out of COVID and everyone's angry. Everyone, everyone seems to be angry and emotions are boiling and, and on the point of um, exploding. And we seem to have forgotten kindness and perspective. So I would love to be remembered as somebody who was kind, who always could see things from both sides. So instead of wading straight in with my ferocious temper, which I do have, but I keep in check, um, I would really love to be remembered for being kind and, and looking at things from both sides, but also that I've inspired my daughter. That's really key for me. So yeah, inspiring my daughter to be another strong, independent person and to be who they are and to be seen and not comp to compromise within reason, but not compromise who they are. So that's what I'd like. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, again, I'll share, I'll share that. One of my key phrases I see even on our, you know, our corporate side, and to me what's very important is integrity. It's about saying and doing the right things when nobody's watching. Um, and can you look in the mirror and say, you know, okay, I've not got everything right, but I've done the absolute best to my ability. And I've been a kind person. I've not been a... And then, yeah, I get road rage and I cut people up now and again, but um, it's not meant out of malice, it's just heat at the moment. And, and to your point, I think you're absolutely spot on is, particularly where I reside, you know, is in uh, in an area sort of housing estate per se. Um, and everyone was like, there was a big air of camaraderie and we made the best of pitching in through COVID and all this good stuff. And even, you know, you went round and everyone queued without being aggressive about it because we had to do it. But now everyone's just reverted back. It's like the freedom's come, the... The masks are off, everyone's scuffling around to get a seat on the train. There doesn't, doesn't seem to be any thought for anyone anymore again. And we just completely revert to the way we were before it all happened. Yeah, it's it's just, I, I find it, uh, she's just scratching her head there, literally scratching my head. Um, <laughs> talk about your your body responding. I do find I find it really hard and uh, challenging because everybody, and, and I'm going to say it on air, every single person has been traumatized by the pandemic. Our children are traumatized by the pandemic. The yeah. teachers, the doctors, every person who stayed working, the security industry, all the people who stayed working are traumatized through the pandemic. It's not gone away. Mm -hmm. It's just we're trying to adapt and we need to adapt to it with kindness. And I really, I wish we'd stop hitting the the, the emergency button to go and, and exploding when actually we could just talk. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's my that's my lecture for the morning. Closing comments. <laughs> <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. It really has. No, you, we haven't even touched you. on the DJing. No. Um, the man who said I don't have a very interesting life has a fabulous life. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you, Kirsty. <laughs>